0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, How they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and in the middle of our short break in the regularly scheduled pod, we're back with another study group episode, marking the end of an era in the Walt Disney Animation Studios catalogue in more ways than one. That means there's no required viewing this week, no homework, no assignments. Instead we'll be looking back over the eight films we covered during the bangers era, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, and The Jungle Book, discussing our favourite sequences, songs and characters, updating our rankings, and taking a brief look at what comes next. We'll also be exploring an event that marked an overwhelming fracture in the studio and the wider Disney brand, the death of Walt Disney himself. It's going to be a heavy one guys, but as usual I'm not alone in this and joining me to discuss all of the above over the next hour or so is our resident lecturer, Dr. Sam Summers! Hooray! The crowd goes crazy. Sam, how's it going? It's going
1: quite well. I don't normally get a hooray. That is that no. just because it's been a while? Everyone's it's because it's been a while.
0: Though. I've missed you. Like It's been probably a couple of months since we last recorded. How's your summer been? Have you been in Bermuda Merlin mode this entire time?
1: I've been doing my best, you know. It hasn't been the greatest weather <laughs> yeah, all, i mean it's not it, been bermuda but... weather it's not been but... bermuda weather. <laughs> bermuda. that's okay so that's one thing that we kind of discovered um recently was that you can't pronounce the word bermuda
0: but bermuda Bermuda. why are you trying to add it B- bermuda. bermuda
1: bermuda with a y um <laughs> but we we found out that ben couldn't pronounce bermuda because we had a bit of a meetup I guess people might not know that we live on opposite ends of the country. You're normally in London, I'm normally in Newcastle. But I came down and we had a couple of little adventures. I was very Bermuda Merlin that weekend. Hawaiian shirt, shorts, Birkenstocks. I think Bermuda Merlin wears branded Birkenstocks (laughs) in the movie. And we had our own little jungle cruise
0: on a little lake. We did. We went on a pedalo in Dulwich Park and felt like we were on our own Jungle Cruise. We had Skipper Sam, Trader Ben. It was the whole thing. It was great. Have you seen Jungle Cruise, by the way? Have you seen the movie? I've seen Jungle Cruise.
1: I enjoyed Jungle Cruise. This is the the live-action Disney movie Jungle Cruise based on the Disney theme park ride. Jungle Cruise that we're talking about for The very same,
0: starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Emily Blunt on an adventure that's basically sort of Indiana Jones meets Pirates of the Caribbean meets any other adventure movie you've ever seen, but I thought it was fun too, I had a good time with it. Good bit of a laugh, I mean I've I've never even been on Jungle Cruise The Ride
1: but I've watched several ride-throughs and documentaries about Jungle Cruise The Ride and I will say from that perspective missed out quite a lot of animals right? The Ride Mm. is this kind of, it's set in this like like hodgepodge of all the jungles of the world there's like a bit of Amazon, a bit of India and a bit of Africa, so it's got like all the animals you would ever want, hippos and giraffes and lions and everything. In the movie I guess they couldn't do that, so they just set it in the Amazon
0: and you miss out on the hippos and the elephants and the giraffes and the lions You do, but I did appreciate, having previously watched the Behind the Attraction episode on Mm. Jungle Cruise which they released around the same time as the film uh, they go into how all of the skippers on the Jungle Cruise ride come up with their own spiels and have different levels of jokes that they can play into and that kind of thing and at the start of the film you get the rock basically doing his own skipper spiel um so i appreciated all the in jokes i felt like i was part of the disney club i felt like i was in the gang oh that was that was quite good wasn't it yeah nice little reference there decent movie overall should
1: be out on disney plus before too long
0: yeah I mean it's on premiere access at the moment I think it'll be another kind of month or two before it's on the freebie level speaking of which Cruella is now a Disney plus freebie and if you listen to our 101 Dalmatians episode and you haven't seen Cruella yet genuinely it's great I think it's really good I guarantee it's going to be better than whatever the idea of that film is in your head so I definitely recommend you go and check that out but now that we've done shilling for Disney+, Plus, which we're definitely not sponsored by. I mean, where's, where's the Disney check, Sam? Should we crack on with the substance of the study group? Should we get into the big meaty topics? Let's go, let's go.
1: So, Ben Travers, Benjamin. Yes, skipper Ben. What do you think? have been some of the themes and trends that unite these films that we've looked at. Anything that you think carries across from film to film, or anything that you think's developed over the course of watching these movies.
0: This era, the bangers era, is so distinct from the package era, which is what we came out of just before we entered into Cinderella and all of that. And I guess there's a few things that probably stand out overall, one of which is just the massive change in the visual style over the course of these films. Like, we went back into some pretty lavish, gorgeous princessy stuff, and then we got into the quite scratchy Xerox era, uh, and around the same time we had the like big wide cinema scope, like lavish, super widescreen things. So this felt like an era when they were really playing and stretching the idea of what they wanted to do in their films visually, so that was one thing. In terms of like thematics and stuff, I guess we've picked up on quite a few like Disney preoccupations that felt like they just grew in stature here. So you've got more like big mythology stuff in terms of like more princess stories like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, classic literary adaptations, so Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Jungle Book, which I don't know if we think of those as even more classic now because of the Disney movies, but I'm sure at the time were probably pretty big deals in the literary circles, so it felt like Disney really grappling with these high culture stories and giving a Disney take on them and at the same time with something like Lady and the Tramp and especially 101 Dalmatians, you had more like contemporary American Disney movies. 101 Dalmatians we talked about, well obviously that's London, that's Britain, but it being 60s, being jazzy, uh, having all of these influences in the way that it looked and sounded, and in Lady and the Tramp, even though I think that was still a bit of a period piece, it looked kind of like contemporary America, or I think we said at the time, the America of Walt's childhood. So you had all of these swirling things for me in the bangers era that all extended from what we'd seen them do in the first five features and in the package era but that just felt bigger and stronger and more confident this time around does that get me an a plus sam does that get me a first that was very good that was that was excellent
1: you picked up on a lot of good stuff there i think definitely the most interesting kind of trend or development for me over the course of this period is this shift from like classical to contemporary sensibilities, whereby we start off with Cinderella taking us right back to Snow White style fairy tale adaptation, sort of vaguely classical scorings and like lilting musical numbers. And then we end up in the world of the Jungle Book with its jazz and with its kind of scratchy Xerox animation and illustration. And in a way, I guess the classical mode peaks with Sleep and Beauty because that literally has the classical pieces in the form of the pieces that lift from Tchaikovsky's Sleep and Beauty Ballet. But it also has this like fabulous, glorious art style inspired by medieval tapestry and stuff like that. And from that into Dalmatians, that feels like a big shift, right? That feels kind of whoa like a snap of the fingers moment things are different now, we're setting the modern day for the first time really in, in in Disney feature history, we've got the jazzy soundtrack and we've got this scratchy art style
0: Yeah that felt like such a sort of whiplash moment to go from something that felt as big and expansive and, and expensive <laughs> as yeah. Sleeping Beauty and like we said with that wide frame with the like Cinemascope presentation and then with 101 Dalmatians you're back to Academy Ratio you're into the Xerox style, just the whole look of it is completely different, it's contemporary it's springy, it's jazzy. I think it's easy to look back on the entire Disney Animation Studios catalogue as sort of homogenous, it's Disney style, like this is what Disney looks like. And to, to get to go through each of these films one by one and go, oh my god, these two that came out back to back probably, I think, quite a few years apart, but back to back in the catalogue, were completely different and looked totally different and felt and sounded totally different as well has been a real joy of this era for me.
1: Yeah, like, Alice in Wonderland, Lady in the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians. I guess I've, I've missed out Peter Pan there if we're going chronologically. But, like, really completely different visual styles. And I think even though we might think of Sleeping Beauty as being the peak of this, like, classical influence and this realist style, in its own way, it does still represent a departure from what we're used to seeing from Disney. Like, we're looking at the characters on more of a flat plane, right? There's less dimensionality to it. It's more... It has more in common with like mid-century modernism in that sense, even though what it's trying to do is adapt these much older forms of art, replicate these much older forms of art. So in that sense, it maybe isn't that much of a leap from Sleeping Beauty to Dalmatians because they both represent the Disney artists trying to break away from what had become the typical style, these kind of cutesy realist visuals that people had started to criticise by the time of Lady and the Tramp.
0: hmm I mean, I think that's something that I've appreciated as well is that we came out of the package era and we were in full on Mary Blair mode and we were seeing like flashes of that. And I love that we still saw that in some of the early films of the bangers era, especially things like Cinderella and bits of Peter Pan, maybe. And that by the end, we also had this interesting kind of creative tension between Walt and I'm going to throw out the name Wooly Reitherman. Is that the right that, name? That's, that is a man's name, yes. That is a man's name. And But was it him and, and what who fell out over the whole Xerox process and the look of 101 Dalmatians?
1: Um, I, the person who you might be thinking of is Ken Anderson. So uh, Rytherman is the director who came in really with 101 Dalmatians and was the director who embraced the Xerox process and shepherded all of these films that utilised it. The person who really fell out with Walt was Ken Anderson, who was the like concept artist slash production designer on 101 Dalmatians, who I think took the brunt of the blame for that, although partly because Dalmatians was such a success, we then see Rytherman take that process and run with it, and it has become a lot more associated with him as a director. And we'll be talking more about him as a director as we'll go through the next bunch of films that we're going to look at.
0: Yeah, I just think that's so interesting, that interplay between, again, what we think of as like Disney house style, and then seeing the influence of of particular artists or particular techniques that that become part of that style or clash against that style and, and that tension. I think we've seen it kind of come and go in different ways across the course of these eight films.
1: Yeah, that's something that we didn't really see in that first crop of five films the like really distinct voices of individual artists it's not that there weren't brilliant artists working at the studio during that period we shouted out bill titler when we we're doing those episodes we shouted out tyrus wong but during this period you start to see walt seed so much more responsibility and creative control to people like mary blair the nine old men woolly riverman ken anderson bill pete the screenwriter who um we really Took against. <laughs> and, uh, we don't don't <laughs> let me into this. You're
0: you're in the Bill Pete hate club,
1: <laughs> uh, and the Sherman brothers as well, who I like. Yes, <laughs> um, and, and we'll see some of these people continue to have an influence on Disney going forward, and we'll see new people enter the fold and have an impact as well. And I guess we'll get on to talking about who Walt was and what he really did in a second. But Walt was not the sole creative force on those early features. That is a a complete myth to say that. But he definitely had more authorial control over the overall product and exerted more control over the production process than he did during this era when he was distracted by live action and by the parks and by TV. So we do start to see these individual artists rising up and putting their own stamp on it.
0: I mean, I think you've teed us up quite nicely there. Let's get into the big topic at hand here, which is Walt Disney dying. When we talked about The Jungle Book... That film came out about, I think you say, nine months or so after Walt died. He obviously yeah. worked on it um, and was around for, for much of its production. But by the time it came out, Walt had passed away. And part of the legacy of that film was its positioning as the last Walt Disney animated film. I think it's really hit me, again, going through these films one by one and tracing the history of Disney, even just through the animated stuff. I mean, we've skirted around a lot of the theme park stuff and and all the other things that were happening around this era of of more live action movies happening under the Disney banner, uh, the, the launch of Disneyland. And I think it just really hits home the weight of the loss of Walt, like as as somebody who maybe wasn't always the most hands on, but had generally the vision or was a leader or such a kind of figurehead of this whole operation to suddenly be gone i think it's kind of hit me now how much of a crazy time we might be heading into without him at the lead right i mean
1: that's what's going to be really interesting right is the next no this this study group's going to be interesting but the next study group's going to be really interesting (laughs) because i'm going to be able to say to you ben how did we feel the absence of walt did we feel the absence of walt during this era and then that's the only real way that you can evaluate what he brought to the table is by looking at what happened when he was completely absent and we've talked about what happened during this era as he started to step back quite definitively at times from the production of these movies but what happens afterwards is is the real test of walt disney's claim to the authorship of These movies, right? Is there something that is distinct about the movies produced during his tenure that we cannot see of the later movies? And, and that's a question for the future But obviously a big part of the debate over Walt Disney's legacy is what did he actually do? And did he do anything? So this is something that I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but this is something that has played out much more recently For us, with the death of Stan Lee, who in a lot of ways is a very analogous figure. So, Stan Lee died quite recently. 2019?
0: It was 2018, I think. Wow.
1: Yeah. And that, almost immediately after he died, debates which did exist during his lifetime came to the fore about exactly what did this person do at Marvel, how much should we be celebrating the legacy of Stan Lee, when a big part of that legacy, it has later transpired, revolved around being ascribed credits for things he did not actually do, for comics he did not write, for characters he did not create, etc. And Walt's legacy is seen in a very similar way by a lot of people, but it's a conversation that's been taken place over a much longer period of time, so I think a lot more misconceptions are out there about what Walt did not didn't do, because for so many people, for some reason, well, for, for quite obvious reasons actually, all they want to do is kind of take Walt Disney down because he's being positioned as this perfect guy and as this icon of entertainment and as the name attached to the biggest, most family-friendly, supposedly, entertainment company on the planet. People want to pick apart at that guy's legacy and in a lot of ways when it comes to things like the racism in his films, when it comes to things like the studio's treatment of women, when it comes to things like his involvement in the um, Hollywood communist witch hunts in the mccarthy trials that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do but i think a lot of people also feel the need to chip away at any claim he might have to the authorship of these movies and the fact is these movies would not exist without him even though he didn't draw a single frame of animation on these movies even though he didn't write a single word of dialogue these movies would not exist without him snow white would not exist without had he not decided to do it, had he not decided that that was going to be the next place for this studio and the next place for the animation industry ahead? If Snow White didn't exist, the animated features we know it might not exist. So we've got a lot to thank this guy for, in a way, you know? No one else would have done Snow White, no one else would have done Disneyland. It just wouldn't have happened, right? It's certainly not in the same way.
0: Yeah, I think that's my feeling heading into this as well, is that over the course of the other episodes we've discussed, Walt Disney was a complicated guy, and that he was not a completely kind of scot-free person, that he clashed with the artists and maybe, like, shouted at people who deserved a lot of praise and, and that there was a lot of tension there. And all of that is a completely valid part of the history, but I think I'm struck by the fact that going through these films, looking at the landscape today, as much as it's a bit scary that Disney is kind of taking over everything, Disney genuinely still brings me a lot of joy. These films bring a lot of people a lot of joy. They're full of imagination and creativity, and there's a reason that these films touch people, and why they've endured, and why kids today still love them, and people who grew up on them still love the ones that they grew up on, and the way that Disney as a company has changed with people and with the times you've got all of that plus the theme parks I bloody love theme parks and I can't wait until we can at some point hopefully go to Disneyland Paris or somewhere like that and do some kind of like proper Disneyland episode but I feel like among the big capitalist scariness and the Walt Disney overlord persona you can't take the joy away from that you have to kind of mix it all together and i think i feel very aware of the fact that yeah none of this stuff would exist without walt disney and so i feel i feel sad that we're heading into the post walt era these three eras that we've covered so far the first five features even the package era and now the bangers era feel maybe that bit more special for being like the walt disney years do you know what i mean
1: yeah i I definitely i definitely feel like that and there are such tangible threads that you can trace throughout all the work that he touched throughout the animated movies the live-action movies the theme parks they are all recognizably disney but they're all recognizably walt disney right you know there's some live-action movies that he probably barely even looked at when they were in production but they still bear a degree of the sensibility that he brought to the studio and i mean you know we are adults so we understand that this guy held a lot of quite reprehensible views and did some quite reprehensible things but also we are adults and we understand that we can have more than one opinion conflicting about the same person right we can hold these two ideas in our heads so (laughs) just because I do not agree with a lot of what he stands for as a person it does not mean I can't acknowledge the gifts that he had as a creator, as an artist, if you want to use that word.
0: Yeah, completely, completely. That kind of conflicts and that complexity, I think is all valid and all all interesting as well, as we look at this in a historical context. I think as well, when you're saying that Disney essence, that Disney flavor, I think it's been interesting, again, going through the films that we have so far and picking up what that is from Walt, that that is like Walt's childhood, Walt's America, Walt's kind of appropriation of classic literature as a way of maybe legitimizing kind of cultural cachet of presenting an American ish take on legends and folklore and of also just trying to do cool creative things. Just try like finding a book and being like, we're going to take the animals of the forest and we're going to turn that into a movie because we can, because it's animated and we can use the creative freedom of that. I think all of those things feel like they're tied not just into Disney as a studio, but into Walt Disney as the head of that studio, directing what output that studio would be creating. So, so those are some of our feelings on Walt's death and, and what that means, but for the studio, for the personnel at the studio, how did this change things? I know we're going to delve into that more in the coming era, but, yeah, what what's happening at the studio as Walt passes away?
1: I mean, in terms of how the, the personnel felt, I mean, no one is on record saying, man, I'm glad that guy's dead. Um, <laughs> that would be bleak. <laughs> yeah, like, even even the people who clash with him the most. So we, you know, maybe some people felt that way. I, I don't think we've got any evidence for that. Everyone that you speak to who worked with him... During that era, who has gone on record with their feelings about him, said that they loved the guy, that he was like an essential part of the studio, even up until the day that he died, and that they were gutted that he died. And he died quite young as well. I mean, he was he was sixty five.
0: Mm, that is you. Wait, I mean, I could Google this, and I can't believe I haven't Googled this. How did Walt die? heart problems i think i should know that off the top of my head heart problems brought
1: on by excessive smoking basically he he was like a 10 pack a day guy um (laughs) i mean i
0: think most guys were at that point
1: (laughs) yeah um so that that was what took him from us and he kind of it's one of those situations i believe where he knew for quite a while that something was up that he might not have long left but he didn't tell a lot of people so there was Mm -hmm. quite a lot of shock When it happened, I think he'd been visibly ill for a period, but um, there was quite a lot of shock when he died and had they not been deep into the production of The Jungle Book, had they not been almost ready to drop that film who knows what would have happened you know it might have really derailed the production of a movie if there were if there were earlier on in the process at the animation studio because he was still the guy who had to say yes to everything you know everything did have to go by walt even though he might not any longer be there at the inception of these ideas he still had to sign off on them he was still the guy who corralled the personnel that was how he used to describe himself he said like i'm not an artist I'm, i'm like a bee who goes around taking pollen from different places and putting it in other places and that's how the art gets made it's a bit like dj khaled if you want a contemporary (laughs) analogy like dj khaled gets to put his name on the album i'm sorry i'm not sure if anyone's listening to this um for whom dj khaled would be an appropriate metaphor to describe walt disney i think for most people listening to this is probably the other way around but
0: (laughs) we've got hip cool listeners I'm sure people will be down with DJ Khaled is DJ Khaled cool anymore I don't, <laughs> I don't, think, don't think DJ so. Khaled was ever cool <laughs> but
1: there you go that, that was what it, you you would take Walt mm-hmm. some a frame of animation and he would say another one that was a, <laughs> it was a DJ Khaled reference That was his job. Oh, at
0: the beginning of every movie it's a Walt Disney another one <laughs>
1: <laughs> <sighs> you the best animation right okay <laughs> Alright, that's we're done with that. That's <laughs> over. Um <laughs> Yes yeah, you rest in peace, Walt Disney. It's a solemn occasion. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what he did, and that was still something that needed to be done. And there was not a like for like replacement. There was not another Walt Disney. You got his brother Roy took over the company, took over the construction of, of the Florida theme park, which was their big ongoing project at that point, and Wally Rytherman effectively took over the animation studio. But there was no new Walt, you know, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. There has not, to this day, been a new Walt who performed all of those roles at that company, and there probably never will be.
0: So Mickey Mouse didn't go to the Sleeping Beauty castle in Disney World and a plume of white smoke to say that the new Walt has been declared, that's not how that works? No, no, that's not how that works. (laughs) Good to know. So, I think we're going to get more into the nitty-gritty of everything that comes next when we properly get into the next uh, era. Oh, my God. Is that the Nine Old Men of the
1: Week alarm? No. No, no. The, the Nine Old Men have all been taken care of, ben. I was going
0: to say, we've done all Nine Old Men. What?
1: What, what is this? That's the quiz alarm. I've repurposed the it. The quiz alarm? Yeah. Oh, my
0: God. Is this going to become a regular feature? <laughs> it, it might be. Um,
1: it might, if, if you enjoy it. Um... Okay. If the listeners Wait, I'm it, being quizzed? You're being quizzed. I mean, obviously the listeners are free to play along at home, pause your recording and play along, can keep track. It's a very short quiz. It's a short little okay. Walt Disney quiz. Okay. okay. See how much you know about the great man and his legacy. Okay. You ready? I, I, I think so. Wait, what, what is this quiz? This <laughs> it's <is> a... <laughs> a quiz. It's out of okay. five. Okay. Um, it's a quiz, right? Question one. <laughs> Walt Disney's last written words were the name of a famous Hollywood actor. Name that actor.
0: Um... What, this is like the mid-60s? I don't know, someone like... James Stewart? (laughs) I don't know. No. The answer is Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell? His final words were Kurt Russell. Foretelling the Christmas Chronicles. (laughs) And deathproof in the same moment.
1: After Walt Disney died, they found yeah. like a piece of paper on his desk, and literally all it said was Kurt Russell. Russell. And no one knew exactly what it meant, but Kurt Russell, as a child, as a teenager, had been in a couple of Disney movies. Already, he was in a movie called Follow Me, Boys. <laughs> and he would star in a few more movies, he was, uh, Disney movies. After Walt died, he was in uh, the one and only genuine original family band. He was in uh, The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit. Sounds dapper. And he was in The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes.
0: <laughs> wow, so he'd clearly made some kind of impression on Walt. Maybe maybe he had plans of whatever the next film was going to be, and he was like, oh, it should be Kurt Russell. And then yeah. was there more of a Kurt Russell, like, Disney hookup after Walt's death? Or did they see that note and go, we've got yeah, to do no, those, something with th-
1: this? Yeah, those movies were after Walt died, so I think, right. I think... It was Roy or whoever found the note and he was like I don't know quite what this means but I guess when it to start putting Kurt Russell in movies with insane titles I guess that's what you wanted us <laughs> to do.
0: If I was Kurt Russell I'd be really freaked out by that imagine somebody comes up to you and says your name is the last thing Walt Disney ever wrote and now we're going to put you in a bunch of Disney movies. I don't know That I'd feel some kind of like spookiness I'm about it I'm pretty
1: that. sure people have like interviewed him about it and he, they're like oh do you know what he, why? Do you know what, why he wrote that? What do you mean? also just goes like nope so <laughs>
0: wow get that on the next series of unsolved mysteries please so that's question one question two where is walt disney's head i mean this is the point where the qi klaxon alarms will be going off but like it's it's cryogenically frozen somewhere buried under disneyland or something like that it's <laughs> it's not and i think he knew that <laughs>
1: In your heart. Um, No, Walt Disney's head uh, no longer exists. He was cremated. In many ways, the opposite of being cryogenically frozen. He got made really hot. There are some reports that he developed an interest in cryogenics later in his life, which might be where that urban legend stems from, but it is not true. Question three. Since Walt's death, the Disney company has gone to great pains to remove what from every photograph that he was in?
0: Ooh. What did they get rid of? I don't know, did he have, like, a a facial marking or something that he wasn't fond of?
1: No, the answer is cigarettes. We foreshadowed that earlier on. What? Like, in every photo of Walt Disney, he was smoking a cigarette, right? So now, well, I, I think they kind of stopped doing this recently, but for a long time... Every photo of Walt Disney on Disney property and in like official Disney publications, he's just kind of holding his fingers, like he's holding two fingers up, oh, he's like, like with nothing in them, as if he's churchilling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's very odd.
0: Like, that, why, why would you erase that history when it's like, guys, Walt Disney, the guy who created all this stuff and who you love smoking all the time like he was in these photos and maybe you know he shouldn't have been doing that i think that's the rationale
1: for why they don't do it anymore Mm -hmm. but for a while i guess it was just like oh this tarnishes the image a bit i have also read from quite a reputable source although this sounds completely impossible that for a long time because they kept getting questions about this at disneyland they trained disney staff to always point to everything with two fingers (laughs) Oh, what, to make it like a thing? <laughs> it's, just, it's just what we do here at Disneyland. <laughs> Two finger <laughs> points everywhere.
0: Okay. That,
1: I read that in the Huffington Post, right? And That sounds totally ludicrous to me, but that's a fairly reputable source. Okay, question four. We're getting to the end. How are you, how are you enjoying this so far? I mean, you're not for three.
0: I'm doing terribly, but I'm having fun. Okay.
1: Which of the following are real Walt Disney-produced live-action movies? Oh, like his lifetime, Four movies. The Ugly Dashend. That is a real one. I know that one's real. That is real, and it's fantastic. <laughs> the Norm Memorial. Oh, I'm not sure about that one. Okay. The Norm No. Do you want to leave it for a bit? Leave that. Son of Flubber. I think Son of Flubber is real. Isn't Correct. It? Son of yes. Flubber is real. And lastly,
0: monkeys go home oh so one either monkeys go home or what was the other one the gnome mobile the gnome mobile is real one of those is real <laughs> um, i'm gonna guess i feel like the gnome mobile might be real ben they're all real they're all real oh it was a trick question
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a trick question i just i couldn't be bothered to come up with any any fake ones <laughs> monkeys wow. go home is um, it's about a guy who owns an olive farm and, um, like, his labour force go on strike, so he hires monkeys to be scabs at his olive
0: <laughs> farm. <laughs> That's such a weird premise.
1: Yeah, monkeys go home. Okay, I'll give you a point for that. I'll give you a point yeah, for that. Yeah, come on. one out of four. Uh, lastly, this is an essay question, okay? Ooh. If you could bring Walt Disney back from the dead for just one day and... Hang out with him for a day, take him wherever you want, talk to him about whatever you want. How would you then kill him
0: again? Oh, that didn't that didn't go the way I was expecting. I was like, oh, maybe I, oh, what we do? What would we do for the day? So I would sit and say we're gonna watch all of the MCU and we're gonna sit and Kevin is gonna join us and you guys can share notes about being movie geniuses.
1: No, no, um, you get
0: one deal with him and then
1: you've got to dispatch him. Otherwise, you don't know what's gonna happen. Anything could happen.
0: If I get to do the Marvel thing, then clearly at the end I'm gonna snap my fingers and he's gonna fade away into dust. Oh, that's quite
1: good. Quite a human main answer i think of all the things you could have chosen bop them on the head something like that (laughs) no there we go that's the quiz i'll give you a point for that that was a good answer i got two
0: out of five two out of
1: five which is exactly
0: what we awarded to the sword in the stone we'll bring
1: (laughs) we'll bring this back at some point i don't know i don't
0: know when it'll be a surprise okay well since you interrupted me Let's get on with the next part of the show, which is talking about our favourite songs, our favourite sequences, our favourite characters from the Bangers era. And I feel like we have so much to choose from, especially compared to the first two eras. I feel like everything stepped up in the Bangers era. So do you want to go first? What what, what stands out to you, Sam? Songs, sequences, characters, favourite bits? Um, I think I'll
1: throw in a few characters because, okay, we all know I love Bill the Lizard. I yes. love... Sleeping beauty cosplay owl okay yes but this to me is like really the era where disney characters came into their own right like there's some memorable and some funny characters from those older movies from the first five movies the characters in the bangers era feel a lot richer and a lot more three-dimensional to me so I, I think i said when we got to him that baloo is like for me the first really great kind of three-dimensional character in one of these movies like he's got so much going on he's got comedy he's got pathos he's got real kind of believable mannerisms and, and personality quirks i love tramp i think tramps just like a really cool dude who you, who you want to be around and again has quite a bit of nuance to him and then cruella and maleficent who are just like easily top of the villain pile so far right just these
0: horrible horrible
1: but like gloriously saw <laughs> female characters
0: yeah i for me the villains stand out in this era so much cruella and maleficent and let's throw lady tremaine in there lady tremaine feels like the unsung sort of villain from this era who is actually like really great that shot of her with the glowing green eyes mm. is pretty amazing
1: oh you know what had a great time with captain hook as well had a great hook time was with fun. Him.
0: for me it's still Shmi shaving that seagull's butt <laughs> oh, just a joke <enjoyed laughs> yeah, that never yeah. gets old Let's talk about songs, though, because you mentioned the Sherman Brothers are uh, quite a key part of the end of this era and there's lots of interesting musical stuff happening across the bangers era. I felt like in the first five features and especially in the package era, like there was a lot of music in those films, but I don't think the Disney sort of song element was up to the top of its game in those previous eras, whereas here, immediately, The Bare Necessities, I think, is the best song we've had in any Disney movie so far, just like big a clip. pure big Disney banger. You know, it's a really, really fun one. It leaves you going out on a high at the end of the film. They repeat it several times in the film because like, why the hell not when you've got a song that good, but it also makes me think of, uh, once upon a dream in sleeping beauty, which I thought was just like a beautiful sequence But a really interesting case of them taking that Tchaikovsky music and turning it into a Disney song that feels like a classic Disney tune that maybe hasn't entered the cultural consciousness in the same way that something like Bare Necessities has, but I thought was really, really lovely.
1: Yeah, they're both on my list. Fantastic songs. Bella Nutte is on my list as well. Mm. Beautiful ballad, genuinely kind of romantic song that you might put on on Valentine's Day or any time you're eating spaghetti. Second Star of the Right from Peter Pan is one of my, like, really underrated songs. I think it's, like a really beautiful choral piece with a great little melody. The second star to the right shines in the night for you. I don't know, there's something <laughs> so nostalgic and melancholy about yeah. that, I love it.
0: And I remember you loved the Alice in Wonderland songs as well, didn't you? You and Clarice were buzzing off yeah. the, uh, the trippy little psychedelic tunes in that one.
1: Things like like All in the Golden Afternoon. Again, it's that, it's that melancholy and it's that Disney choir who I think were at the peak of their powers during that era. And to talk about favourite sequence, I feel like most of my favourite sequences match up with songs. I think the Bella Nutty backdrops are beautiful. I think the bare Necessities, floating down the river on Baloo's back is serene. Like That's one of my favourite images from these movies, as I think I said on that episode. The Once Upon a Dream Dance, both the owl version and the prince version. <laughs> fabulous. Also from Sleeping Beauty, I guess Dragon Fight. It's hard to top the yes. Dragon Fight, isn't it?
0: Dragon Fight was top of my list. I, again, just in terms of A big climax a big action climax to that film that feels properly epic that is a full-on like action-adventure showdown the Prince taking down Maleficent in dragon form with all that green fire I said it at the time but it felt massively Game of Thrones to me which I didn't expect from a Disney film I felt like that was a real flex in so many ways from the uh, animation departments do you have anything
1: else you want to cover or shall we start My favourite part of the episode, the ranking.
0: Well, before we get there, I have a couple of other sequences to shout out. So, the ball sequence in Cinderella, Ah, which I think is just swooning and lovely, and the Mary Blair castle, like, it does struggle for me in comparison to Sleeping Beauty, but I really liked most of Cinderella. Once we got past all the bloody mice stuff at the beginning... There's so much of Cinderella that I just think feels like pure classic, sweet fairy tale princess Disney. Um, again, the dress transformation, which we uh, is really memorable. I think because you mentioned a few times that that's like gone down as Walt's favorite piece of animation from any Disney movie, and I can totally see why. I think that is pure Disney magic. And the other, just I guess it's less a sequence because it's quite a big chunk of the movie, but all the baby lady stuff from Lady and the Tramp just melted my heart. It was so, so adorable. Lady and the Tramp was maybe my surprise of this entire era. It just really swept me off my feet. I thought it was so, so sweet. And I think right from that opening section where you're introduced to baby lady and she's just adorable and she's tripping over her own floppy ears and all of that, oh, I loved it so much. So those are the other things I wanted to shout out. And lastly, again, less a sequence than an image. The introduction to Peter Pan in Peter Pan. I can't stop thinking about that. Super creepy shot of him crouching on the roof of the house. His eyes shrouded in darkness and so menacing. Peter Pan was an interesting and weird one because I think that film kind of leans into the dark spookiness of that character at points and especially when you first meet him in that shot.
1: That is a technique that they've brought out quite a few times in this era actually. Kind of like the one... Shot, it's like basically a still image that gets held for longer than you would expect and is really deeply memorable So there's like the creepy image of Peter Pan's glowing face on the roof There's Lady Tremaine with the terrifying green eyes and there is a loose quote-unquote death in the jungle book when he's like Bathed in pale light beneath that tree There's probably more examples than I'm forgetting but they all stand out as like images that they knew were great and that are basically like still
0: paintings that they just want us to linger on okay now we can go to the ranking then we've discussed our favorite songs and sequences and characters and images and all those things let's get into the hard stuff who's going to go first with their ranking should i go first do you want to go first or should we alternate i mean
1: i think we're going to have this is my prediction Mm -hmm. same number eight same number one in between, I'm not so sure, and it could be quite different. I think we've got the same number eight and the same number one.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree. I think we've probably got the same top and bottom on this one. But okay, let's alternate. All right. Uh, in fact, let's at the same time. I'll do a three, two, one countdown. We'll both say our number eight because this is going to be dead on. Three, two, one. The sword, sword in, in the, the stone. goddamn stone. <laughs> <laughs> the sword in the anvil in the stone. Exactly. <laughs> Strike one. I know some people were upset that we didn't love sword in the stone and spent quite a bit of time talking about how that was maybe not a great disney movie um, i really like that people like it that people i think who grew up with it have some affection for it i just think especially as part of this bangers era it just doesn't live up to those other films and wasn't what i hoped for from a disney arthur movie but i think even by that standard there is good stuff in it there are great images in it um, especially that opening i think is really impressive with that shot of of the sword in that really mythical kind of style and that iconic image of Wart pulling the sword from the stone, I think that's a memorable image for a reason. But yeah, it just, uh, this was an easy one for the bottom of the pile for me.
1: I mean, as said, and I'll say again, there are basically no outright bad Disney movies. Almost all of them have something to recommend them, something that's worth watching them for. I think this has the fun wizard duel, it has the cool image that you mentioned from pulling the sword from the stone that I think works really well. I think the opening's cool as well it's generally i think a a decent application of the of the xerox process although it kind of pales to hundred and one donations which it comes immediately afterwards but i also think it doesn't get enough credit for introducing like comic anachronisms through the figure of merlin which will become such a big part of movies like hercules and aladdin and of course shrek you know Son the stone did that first in a way so again absolutely no disrespect to the stoneheads. okay
0: <laughs> they're out there sam there are, there are dozens of them <laughs> i have also had multiple
1: people say this was my favorite when i was a kid and i watched it again after the podcast and you know what you're absolutely right okay like it is i'm not <laughs> trying to like ruin anyone's childhood and I'll, I'll try to insult anyone's intelligence like i'm sure there are people who have watched it as adults and loved it but if you haven't watch it again Say what you think, okay? It's it's Robbie. Alright, okay, so what's your number seven?
0: My number seven is Alice in Wonderland, which I... Li- no, I didn't like. I, I admired. I thought it was a really good fit. I was going to say, oh, which I liked. But my problem with it was that I thought it was kind of really impressive, and the animation and the colour and the vibrancy and the Lewis Carroll of it all, great. I just didn't really like it very much. It was a bit much for me. And and again, this is is relative. This is the bangers era. These are all great films, so the stuff that's ranked towards the end I don't think is bad. But Alice in Wonderland was just not my cup of insane tea. I
1: cannot fault you for that. I understand, and I understand anyone who says that they didn't like that movie. I think... There's some people who would react a lot more strongly than you and say, "I just, it's just my number nonsense, I just can't stand it. (laughs) But I've put it a little bit higher. Okay, so what's your seven then? My number seven is Cinderella, which even now I'm kind of looking at my number six, I'm like, really? But I think Cinderella just because... Again, I think I said this when we did the episode, of maybe all the movies in this era, it just feels like the least remarkable one which is part of its appeal like it's the quintessential disney princess movie but also like what am i revisiting here like pretty much the lead remain stuff and the ballroom sequence and then other than that it's just the mice stuff and i'm not i'm not here for the mice stuff <laughs> i prefer it to the james corden mouse that we're about to get in the amazon prime cinderella <laughs> i have yet to watch i imagine i'll prefer it to that not a, not a huge fan of cinderella it's kind of generic to me
0: interesting interesting okay well what about your number six
1: my number six and this was very close between this and cinderella is peter pan
0: that's my number six as well oh there we go yeah it's oh, also our problematic non-fave
1: well yeah <laughs> obviously it's got the the native american stuff which is viscerally disgusting and unwatchable but You know, I really like the music, like, I guess, like, some of the Tinkerbell stuff's cool, some of the Peter Pan imagery is really good, it's got a great, just nostalgic aura to it all the way through, Captain Hook and Smee are very good, like, comedic villains and foils, but, again, pretty unremarkable compared to the films that are
0: higher on my list. I'd agree with that. It just didn't really impact me massively. I think it's a more interesting film than the idea of it that's gone down. Uh, like we talked about, Peter being a slightly creepier character of Tinkerbell, being like really jealous and quite evil in a way that she's not in the wider sort of Disney Tinkerbell lore. And I think it's just a bit of a shame that that should be Wendy's movie in a way that it isn't. And I think I would like that if it was Wendy's movie in terms of it being this kind of coming of age film. And that makes me really intrigued about the David Lowry, Peter and Wendy live action film, which especially because did somebody recently describe, I think he recently said that that was influenced by The Lighthouse or something, which is completely <laughs> nuts. Maybe he was messing with whatever journalist he was speaking to that day. But yeah, number six for me for Peter Pan. Uh, and then my number five was Cinderella. So I did really like Cinderella, but it, it didn't crack the sort of top half of this era for me. But like you said, I think it is just, classic quintessential disney princess film it doesn't it's not as remarkable as sleeping beauty but i think there's a a sweetness to it and just a real good-heartedness that encompasses so much of what has gone down as the disney princess formula
1: so my number five is alice in wonderland which again i appreciate all your criticisms but i just think it, it really stands out among these movies and among all disney movies It looks cool, it sounds cool, it's got some excellent voice performances, it's got Ward Kimball at the peak of his powers, at least, in a feature film, bringing all of that high-energy kinetic wackiness. So for me, that has a special something, or a few special somethings, to put it above Peter Pan, Cinderella.
0: So heading into my top four, I'm going to say all of my top four I thought were like excellent outstanding yeah we've all got the
1: same top four as well
0: so we've got the same top four haven't we i'm intrigued to see if it's in the same order i think for me the ordering of these just came down to like which one did i emotionally connect to or had that extra element that just nudged it above some of the other ones so for me my number four is 101 dalmatians what was yours it was 101 dalmatians (laughs) That is interesting because Hundred More Dalmatians is lovable in so many ways, and has great character stuff, and the dogs are super cute. I think there was something about maybe the second half that was very slightly sluggish at points when you get the five-minute twilight bark and it's just five minutes of dogs barking at each other and then you go to the goose in the barn. I think it maybe lost a little bit of momentum and that's that's kind of it on the drawbacks for me. Like, it's a great film. It just didn't quite punch up there with my top three.
1: Yeah, it's, it's up there high for me because of A. Cruella, B. the fact that it does have, for its time, a very unique look and tone. And C, I can't remember. No, (laughs) Dogs? Dogs, yeah, dogs. Um, What does hold it back is that compared to the movies, some of the movies that I've placed above of it, it doesn't really have that emotional call. There's nothing in there that is really going to tug my heartstrings, make me cry, give me the feels. Apart from when the dog nearly dies, but that's early on and it's brief.
0: So for me, my number three kind of has that issue as well, and I think that's maybe what's holding it back from the top two. And my number three is The Jungle Book. What's yours? So my number three is
1: *Lily and the Tramp, and I would have guessed Mm. that you wouldn't have The Jungle Book as high as me.
0: Yeah, I really like The Jungle Book, and I think the music in it is great. I love the jungle setting. The characters in it are so lovable. I think in many ways it does some of those things better than Disney has in any other movie, And yet, at the same time, I don't think it necessarily has that extra emotional connection. I think I have a bit of emotional connection to it because it's a firm favourite in our family. But I think revisiting it, I think part of the joy of it, like I said in the other episode, is that it's kind of light and it's just Mowgli sort of ambling through the jungle and having a lovely time, which is, is great. I love that about the film. But that also means that it doesn't have those extra things that kind of punch through for me. But yeah, Jungle Book... I do love it. It's such a wonderful thing. So my number
1: three is Lady and the Tramp. The animation on the dogs in this movie, especially Baby Lady, done by the great Les Clark, is absolutely virtuosic. It's like stand out, brilliant. The way, like how observed it is, how accurate it is, yet also full of personality. These things are recognizably dogs when they need to be, and they're recognizably human when they need to be as well. And that is no mean feat. The only reason it's not higher is because the other two movies are better, in my opinion. Or hit me in a different way. Purely, like, not top two, just because the top two are top two, if that makes sense.
0: So what's your thoughts, then, on on Jungle Book, which is your
1: number two? My number two is Jungle Book and this is the only movie that we have ranked so far where i will freely admit that my nostalgic feelings for this play a major part in it for me like this was the certainly in terms of this era this is the disney movie of my childhood i've got so many great memories tied up in it and again it's a thing that i used to watch with particular members of my family and stuff as well and that's a big part of it and you know as a movie it's fantastic again spectacular characters spectacular performances great songs great visuals beautiful score really underrated score i think but what pushes it above *Legion* in the tramp with which it has most of those things in common is my associations with it which i can't mm-hmm. escape
0: Whereas for me, my number two, Lady and the Tramp, I think is partly there and so high because I didn't have those expectations or that connection to it, and it charmed the absolute pants off me. I thought it was just adorable. I thought the characters in it were so lovable, were so sweet. I was so rooted in that dog world. It just had such immense charm and the romanticism of it really came through like I believed in the connection between Lady and Tramp which is crazy because they're two dogs eating meatballs in an alley but that is absolutely lovely and at the same time as it being like a super sweet Disney film at the same time I thought it was an incredibly visually impressive Disney film that was the first one that was in cinemascope you have that big wide frame and you immediately see the difference and the way that you see the neighborhood that they live in the way that you see the dog's eye view of baby lady among all of the feet. And and, and it puts you in that sort of visual perspective of one of the dogs. It did loads of really impressive things, but it wore all of that stuff so lightly because the character stuff was just so wonderful. So that was my number two. And as you correctly predicted, Sam, we have the same number one, because clearly the standout of this whole era and a huge high point of this whole podcast so far is Sleeping Beauty. What? a banger in the bangers era. It's just the best, isn't it? And I mean, a
1: lot of the same things are said about Dalmatians apply to this, like... It looks so cool and it has such a great tone to it, but it doesn't really tug at the heartstrings. It doesn't really, it's not warm. And what kind of bugs me is that that would not have been difficult. It, it just needed a little bit more time with Aurora and and especially a foreground her relationship with the fairies and make that the core of the movie. That would have been like five, maybe ten minutes of extra time I had on. And that kind of bugs me. But at the end of the day, it's just the best. Just look at it. It. Listen to it. It's glorious. There's nothing like it on earth. Spectacular. Yeah.
0: And maleficent. I mean, that character from the moment she rocks up and curses a baby in the opening five minutes, you're like, oh yeah, this is this film's going to be sick. <laughs> <laughs> It's great.
1: We love to see it. Baby curses. We love to see it.
0: Okay, so then, very quickly, which of these films enter your overall top five rankings? Because I know for me, this has completely overhauled my personal top five, which I haven't really been keeping track of, but I know the ones that have stood out to me from the previous eras that we've looked at. So uh, what's your current top five, Sam? My current top
1: five, and I think this might look a little bit different, number five is now... The Jungle Book. So that has knocked out Snow White. Mm-hmm. Number four is Dumble. Number three is Sleeping Beauty, which has knocked out Bambi. And number two remain Fantasia and Pinocchio.
0: Ooh, so Pinocchio's your number one still. Pinocchio is my number one still. I'm sorry, Ben. Sleeping Beauty. That is truly insane to me, Sam. But <laughs> our differing <laughs> perspectives is what makes this podcast a nice thing. Yeah, My top five is very different. So my number five now is 101 Dalmatians. My number four is The Jungle Book. My number three is Bambi, formerly my number one. So my top two are now Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. So four of my top five are from this era.
1: Ah, you've only got one Survivor. You've only got one Survivor.
0: Yeah, nothing from the package era, and one Survivor from the first five features. I think it's, uh, I don't know, Snow White, I don't know, has its place in history. Pinocchio was freakish hell, (laughs) <laughs> um dumbo i was like i sort of love it but also is a lot of stuff going on in that film sam yeah um, no, no. and fantasia again i thought was just like really really impressive but it didn't grab me in that extra sense whereas bambi bambi is the best of that era for me uh, and it's now nestled in a little sandwich of bangers era classics
1: it's going to be fascinating to look at how these have changed by the end of the podcast because obviously we're going to do like a big massive ranking at the end right we have to it has to happen and i think i'm i'm just really excited to see how your top five changes as we go on (laughs) because i i've seen all these movies i know what my final top five is unless something really affects me as we're going back through them i think i know what it's going to be at the end but with you anything could happen anything could happen
0: That's nearly us done for this study group then, but before we go, let's tease the next era we'll be heading into. Now, generally the next chunk of episodes we'll be delving into will be The Dark Ages. That is the next era, 70s and 80s fare. But there are a few films at the early end of this era that we'll also be referring to as The Bangover, The Hangover from The Bangers era, with films that still feel of a piece with the ones we've been discussing. But Walt's death felt like a natural pause point, so yeah, we have a couple of bang-over movies coming up, major favourites like The Aristocats and Robin Hood, and that's going to be followed by a bunch of stuff that I literally don't know at all, so I'm fascinated going into this. I've got a couple that I know pretty well, and then a whole run of films that I have never seen before in my life. So, without spoiling too much, Sam, what, what do the next few decades look like for Disney sans Disney?
1: Well, as we've discussed, I think the the first couple of movies share a lot of DNA with the Jungle Book especially. We're going to see some of the characteristics of that movie spread out for a little bit under the, the eye of Woolly Reithman. And then things kind of go all to hell. Not necessarily in a bad way. We've gone with the Dark Age for this era I mean partly because that's what people have decided it's called on the internet but I think it is quite apt because it's it's a dark age in terms of the studio's financial fortunes which do start to dip and the movies especially after the bangover tend to be both thematically darker than anything we've seen since Pinocchio in some cases and visually dark weirdly enough as well like if you colour charts for these movies, you'd see a lot more kind of blacks and navies and stuff, so that's something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be fun, it's going to be genuine chaos, I'm so excited.
0: Especially because we're heading into the spooky months of the year as well, like, that feels like a very autumnal,
1: early
0: winter vibe, you know, the Dark Ages, bring it on. But, Okay then, that is it for this special study group episode. So we are still on our little break at the moment, but fear not because we have another very cool and exciting bonus episode coming your way in the not too distant future. Keep an eye on your feeds for that. That should keep you all occupied while we get the gears moving on the Dark Ages, sure to be packed with more Disney magic and exciting guests. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Bring on the darkness. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.